Today, we're diving deep into effective teacher development with Professor Rob Coe. Stay tuned to discover why the most potent lever for student improvement might be the most overlooked. Hey everyone, it's Shane Leaning. Welcome back to Global Ed Leaders, a podcast about education across countries and cultures. I'm an organizational coach and in this show I learn with teachers, leaders and innovators making a difference in international schools around the world. My guest today is Professor Rob Coe, safe to say a leading figure in education. He joined the group Evidence-Based Education in 2019 after serving as Professor of Education at Durham University. Now, notably, Rob has contributed to many influential reports on what makes great teaching. And we started by talking about what seems to be the topic of the moment, instructional coaching. Let's jump in. Instructional coaching, I think, is a really nice example because it is um, a thing that, well, it's always been popular. I think it's become recently, there's been a bit more of a wave of enthusiasm for it. Uh, there's also lots of really good evidence about coaching. I mean, going back to the Joyce and Showers in the 1980s, again, it's really not a new thing, but also lots of really different interpretations of coaching, mentoring. Is that a different thing? Is that the same thing? Is instructional coaching different from any other kind of coaching? For those of us who speak British English, the word instructional is also slightly problematic because that isn't, we don't, it has a slightly different meaning in British English, which is about a bit more about giving people instructions, telling them what to do. Again, in, in the US context, it doesn't have that that connotation. It, it just means teaching. And of course, quite different interpretations, different models of coaching, which I think we can broadly characterise as being more or less directional. So some versions of coaching are really telling the person what to do. This is, I think, more or less the, the Bambrick-Santoyo model. Uh, and Step Lab, I think, again, are, are pretty close to that, as opposed to uh, the coach as an advisor or as a, a kind of sounding board to to a, more like a, more like a counsellor almost. And I, I know that's not how they'd characterise it, and there's, there's more to it than that, and the coach is an expert. But these are quite different understandings of what coaching is and how it works and what it should be like. And yet we're all using the same word. So that's really, really confusing because what are we talking about? Do we mean this version or that version? So that's one of the things. There's also a whole lot of stuff about the sort of research and practice gap, which is that, yes, lots of good evidence supports coaching as being effective. Lots of good studies and a good meta-analysis, at least one good meta-analysis, say this can have a, quite a big effect on student outcomes. And so we might say, well, if we're interested in evidence and we want to be evidence-based, surely we're going to be doing instructional coaching. And I know some people have made that exact claim. And the problem with it I have is that what's been evaluated in those research studies is, I think, a bit different from what teachers and schools are typically implementing. Right. And inherently, it can't quite be the same thing that's been evaluated in the research studies. So we've got a slight translation gap there or a a modification, an implementation gap, you know, different ways you could describe that. So it's quite a nice example, I think, to understand the problems of using research to guide practice. Because my view is that, that the things that are being done in schools under the heading of instructional coaching will probably, on average, have a, a pretty much no effect on children's learning, despite the fact that there's all this good evidence to support it. 
and that feels a bit paradoxical in fact it feels very paradoxical and it it in a way it it sort of undermines the whole idea of of research based or evidence based practice you might think well the evidence supports this and yet you're saying if we do it we won't get any impact so how can that be i think the problem is it's the gap between what's been evaluated and what can actually be done at scale in schools and the key issue there i think is the expertise of the coach because my reading of that literature is that the coach's expertise, we don't know exactly what it is coaches have to do or know or what skills and knowledge and experience they need to have, but something about that expertise is really important. And like any kind of expertise, it's going to be scarce. There aren't enough people who have enough of it. And I just worry that if we uh, take all our best teachers who are likely to be the best coaches, again, some evidence to support that, although it won't be hard and fast, out of the classroom to do more of this thing, well, it's got to have a really big effect on everybody that they help to make up for the fact that we've taken all our best teachers out of the classroom to give them time to do it. Or are we just saying they they do this somehow with no time given to it and do the same amount of teaching they would? I mean, that doesn't seem very sustainable or fair or likely to work. So when you actually think through the logistics of it, I think it's quite tricky to make it work at scale in practice in real schools. Yeah, this conversation is so timely and so useful for a lot of leaders. So a lot of the listeners to this podcast are in international schools, many international schools. I think in a a similar context to the British context in that this term instructional coaching has come about more recently and people are kind of jumping on it, as you say, going, look, you know, there's evidence to say this this is the best PD we can do, but everyone's interpreting in different ways. And I don't think you know, that's helped by there's lots of organizations offering instructional coaching in inverted commas in different ways as well. So, so where does, where would a school leader start then? They've got this, this thing such as instructional coaching, for example, they, they go, okay, that I'd like to, to improve PD. Where, where would a leader start in thinking uh, about implementing and what, and what kind of what should they be looking out for when bringing something like this into their school? I know you've done a bit of work on that with evidence-based education. Yeah, so, I mean, the the blog series is all about how we have thought about and designed our own uh, offer, which is the Great Teaching Toolkit. And the, the thing about the Great Teaching... So Great Teaching Toolkit is a, is a, a package that schools can buy. So, you know, it's, it's for sale. Some parts of it are available for free. So, um, you know, it's not... Um, you don't have to pay money to get all of it for sure. One of the main um, criteria that we've tried to use is about scalability. So we, want to, we don't want to do things that depend on uh, schools, teachers, school leaders having let's say, direct contact with us because there's only a small number of us and we can't work with every school in an intensive way. So we have to create systems and support and we've got things like courses and tools that schools can use. They don't require um, expertise, if you like. They're, they're scalable. Now, obviously, that limits what you can do. If, if I could work individually and, and other people in, in, in the EBE team, let's say, could work individually with a with a school i'm sure we could we could really help them and there are many other that's not a claim about me in particular that you know lots of other people could claim that and that would be true the problem is again 
There just aren't enough of those experts to go around. And even if there were, they're quite expensive. You know, um, if you've got to pay day rates for people who have that kind of expertise, um, that'll add up to a lot of days and that'll be quite expensive. And how many teachers can they work with and so on? So that just isn't scalable. We try to think about, well, how can we make this scalable? The thing is that coaching can be really effective. In research studies, it is really effective. It's a very powerful way to help teachers. So why? What, how does it work? Why does it work? Can we take those, those kind of core mechanisms, those essential ingredients, active ingredients that, that are behind the story of why coaching work, works, and can we find a way to make that more scalable? Now, I don't know the answer to that, but what we've tried to do, or our starting point for investigation, if you like, is to, yes, go with coaching because coaching is powerful partly because it's a version of CPD that is flexible and responsive. And one of the problems with a lot of CPD is that it isn't flexible and it isn't responsive. So it's a kind of one-size-fits-all. At the start of term, all the staff sit in a room, they hear a talk, it's the same talk for everyone, and um, somehow they're meant to then go away and do that thing for the rest of the year. And, and, you know, if we thought about that as a way of helping anyone to learn anything, you know, if we thought that was how to help our students learn how to solve simultaneous equations or understand uh, different sources in history or do column subtraction, you know, we'll just get them all in a room, we'll explain it to them once, and then we'll say, right, off you go, you can do this for the rest of the year. No one would think that was great pedagogy. No one would think that students would learn anything. How ironic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it just doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. Um, the first time that people try, you know, I can give the best possible explanation of how to do this column subtraction. Let's take that as an example. And then I, I say to the children, right, off you go and have a go. And I give them a nice, easy example, perhaps a partly worked example to get going. And still half of them uh, will do it. And the other half will get halfway and struggle and they'll need a bit of guidance and support. And that's how people learn stuff. You know, we know that they they can hear the best possible explanation uh, that gets them to the point where they're ready to have a go. But ready to have a go is not the same as having mastered it. You have to have a go, um, mostly find that looks a bit harder than you, th- you know, you thought you could have a go and do it. And then you realize, oh, actually, it's a bit, there's a bit more to it. Uh, and you get some guidance, some support, some feedback. That's where coaching can help, I think, because it does do that. It's interactive in that way, as opposed to the, the sort of standard model of inset days, which isn't interactive. Uh, and isn't at all bespoke either. So the other thing about coaching is that uh, in in many models of coaching, I as a teacher get to choose or have some input at least into what aspect of my practice I'm going to work on. And that's a positive thing. Lots of, again, evidence supports that and human nature supports that. I'm I'm going to be much more bought into it if I've chosen uh, what I'm going to do. It's relevant to me. And it may be different from what's relevant to another teacher, even a teacher teaching the same content and the same classes or similar classes in the next door classroom it won't be the same necessarily let alone say if i'm a maths teacher and someone else is teaching pe or something like that that you know it isn't it, there isn't going to be a lot of transfer so coaching is responsive in that way and that's a, a really good thing um so how can we make it that so again we've tried to think about well let's create some some diagnostic tools so that teachers can see their own classroom more sharply and um, that's in the last blog uh, in the series about feedback. 
which is um, the arguments for giving teachers feedback. So we know that people's self-assessment in general is terrible. We're all really bad at judging how good we are at doing things. Uh, lots of surveys ask teachers how you know how good do you think you are, and pretty much every teacher thinks they're above average. And <laughs> you don't have to know a lot of statistics to know that that's unlikely to be true. Uh, so we overestimate how good we are mostly, and we actually, uh, not just that, but we we really don't have much idea about what we're good at and what we're not. And the the kind of feedback that you can get naturally in classrooms is very limited. It's very impoverished. And we do get feedback. If you're in a teacher, you're always looking, scanning the room to see if children look as though they're interested or engaged or, you know, puzzled or whatever. And, and you're perhaps asking questions and, and, and that kind of thing as well. But the feedback about whether what you're doing is really good or not, is it working well, is pretty limited, I think. So these feedback tools are helping to sharpen that picture. We talk about holding a mirror up to a teacher so they can really see their own practice in a way that's more objective and, and, and sharper, clearer. So we think that's really important and really powerful. And that is one of the things, again, a coach can do. But we can do that with with tools that are scalable. So things like we've got uh, student surveys, for example, to ask the students, what do they think? Um, not perfect, of course. They have a perception of stuff which um, isn't always the whole truth. But it can be really valuable. It can give people valuable insights into how students perceive what they're doing and how they perceive that classroom. We've got observation tools as well. So you can see even just using video is a really good way to to see that most teachers when they see video of themselves are just utterly shocked by uh, what it looks like because it's not how they perceive themselves and how they uh, so it's a different perspective and, and really valuable so these kinds of tools help people to see and and our hope is that by creating collaborative groups of teachers working together in a sense everyone plays the role of a coach in that in that context, everyone also plays the role of the coached teacher. And so it's reciprocal. Um, it's much more scalable because you don't have to have one expert coach working with one teacher being helped. Um, and whether it re- and there are some models for this, um, uh, lots of different models. So we looked at things like lesson study and uh, professional learning communities, quite a lot of research on that. There's some nice work from... Uh, Australia on um, uh, uh, teaching uh, groups like that as well. Uh, so various different studies that that have fed into that model, and um, we just need to see if it works. Um, and and we've done a little bit of pilot work with some schools, and and they seem to like doing it. And I think it offers a lot of flexibility. That's another thing that's really really important. Not sort of one size fits all, fitting everybody having to fit into a straitjacket, but allowing every school is different, every teacher is different, every classroom is different, and uh, people want different things, uh, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, but you have to be flexible definitely to fit in with that. So I think the answer to your question, what should a school leader do, is take a look at uh, at our product and, and buy it, I suppose. That would, that would be one answer. <laughs> um, but, but the reason for that isn't just because, you know, it helps us, but because what genuinely what we've tried to do here is to create something that could work in any school that harnesses the best available evidence uh, to work at scale for um, regular teachers in regular schools, but also to have that flexibility 
to be able to fit with a range of different contexts. And, and certainly we do work with a lot of international schools. And so um, it, it can definitely work there. I think what I like the sound of is one, we've not just got this one size fits all that's going to work great for you. This is something that you, you know, you've got to work with and we understand that it's got to be adapted. So you're thinking about scalability right from the very start with the design of your program, very much. Um, which, um, which I think is, is really important because going back to the instructional coaching, we're adapting something where, you know, we're, we're using a coaching approach and trying to take what we think are the mechanisms that make it work. Yeah. Because, you know, often there's kind of arguments that happen, Rob, within education sometimes when things get adapted, because then there's the, there's the purists who come from one background who are going, that's not, that's not how it should be. Yeah. And in a way you can understand that because they know it works. <laughs> so they're saying, you know, deviate at your own risk, which is what you're saying. But it doesn't acknowledge the complexity of schools across the world, right? It doesn't acknowledge the, rea- the reality. So that's a really, I think there's a, there's a really big issue underpinning that, which is what, how do we feel about adaptation and uh, kind of making things our own, adapting them to our context? And in some versions of um, education improvement, uh, school improvement, adaptation is seen as a nuisance. What we're looking for is fidelity. Mm. What we're looking for is people to conform. And that can be seen both in programs that people sell or, or provide, but also within schools in terms of policy. So some school leaders will say, this is how every lesson should start. This is how every lesson should feature these kinds of elements and and so they've got this list of uh, sometimes they're even called non-negotiables yep. things that every teacher's got to do so that those all belong in the same camp to me that they're all about fidelity they're about saying let's specify really tightly what we want everyone to do and then police that and make sure they do and you can tell from some of the language i'm using there that i'm not a big fan you know it's it's about coercion it's about policing and so on these words have slightly negative overtones so so i think that's wrong partly because it's just not a very i wouldn't want to work in that school you know i don't want to be a teacher who's told follow this recipe and don't deviate yeah that sucks all the joy out of one of the you know the most rewarding jobs in the world i think so that's part of it but that's not the biggest part the biggest part is that you just cannot prescribe closely enough uh, you can't sort of mandate quality in that way and quality depends on adaptation, actually. So adaptation is not a, it's not a bug, it's a feature, it's not a nuisance, it's a, something we have to work with because every classroom is different. You know, the same behaviour that is effective at one moment, even with the same class, is ineffective at the next moment. You can do exactly the same thing and it, it was the right thing to do once and it's the wrong thing to do the next time. So classrooms are complex and learning is complex and students are complex and there is no way of, of tying that down and saying, just do this, follow this recipe, it'll work. It won't work. And, and I think that lots of evidence supports that. It's not just my prejudice against people telling me what to do. I think there is a special case where, uh, where teachers are really um, at the beginning of their learning or, or uh, perhaps they don't have a, a wide range of skills where a more prescriptive approach can be more helpful. So this is, if you like, expertise reversal that... When, when people first start learning an idea, and some of the literature talks about novices, which I think is a horrible word, then being more prescriptive is helpful. Telling them, here's what you do, follow this example, uh, try and do exactly the same as this. That can be really, really helpful when you start out. But as you become expert, 
it stops being helpful and you have to uh, step back a bit and allow a lot more adaptation, a lot more freedom, a lot more choice, a lot more autonomy, uh, because that prescriptive approach no longer works. It doesn't apply to the kind of complexity of problems that a, a more expert teacher is having to deal with. So I think, again, this is part of, I think it's that kind of approach is seductive for school leaders. Yeah because it gives them a sense of control. It makes them think they're doing something. They can see whether people are complying or not. What they don't see is whether it's actually benefiting students or not, because that's quite hard to know. At the very best, a long delay before you see that. Of course. Um, and I think the answer is that in some cases it may help a bit, but it's it's quite a heavy trade-off in terms of maybe helping some teachers to be a bit better. But, but possibly helping, uh, preventing others from being as good as they could be. I agree. And, and you talk about in your, one of your blogs about adaptive knowledge being important, an important part of a, of a, of a quote unquote expert teacher or, yes. you know, like that's what makes them good. It is. Yeah, exactly. And they need to know. So, so we talk about teachers having to know the how, why, when, and with what. So it's not just enough to know cold call is a good thing to do let you know let's ask the uh, the question before we identify the child who's going to answer it that's the basic fundamental idea i mean actually doing that is hard when you know having someone explain to you that's what you do and then being able to go into your classroom and do it it there's a gap there it's, you know it's the same as the column subtraction thing the first time you try it, it doesn't quite work but even if you understand the principle and can do it you still need to know the how, why, when, and why, and with what. You know, when does it work? If I if I adapt it slightly, will it still work? If I if I do it for this topic, will it work as well as if I do it for that, and so on? So we could use the word theory to talk about that. That the teacher has a a personal theory, if you like, of teaching and learning. How does learning happen? How does this technique help students to learn more? And they need to understand that rationale, that theoretical. Uh, underpinnings the mechanisms if you like by which it works because if they don't understand that then they won't make sensible adaptations they'll use it in the wrong context or they'll do it badly um, and I think that applies to pretty much everything even really sort of rock solid research strategies like say using retrieval practice where there's a hundred years of research that says that that helps people to learn stuff yeah um, but when you tell teachers you must start every lesson with a retrieval quiz what you mostly see in my experience is really terrible retrieval quizzes, you know, that aren't actually helpful and, and a lot of time wasted at the start of the lesson that could be used more productively. And what you really need to do is to build the expertise of the teacher about how to do this well, not say, here's a rule, every lesson's got to start like this. I think that's really important, Rob. And, but in your model that you talk about a lot is because of scalability, you talk about peer coaching, yeah. the peer group model. It's kind of being the most cost-effective, the most scalable model we can use with that. Could you talk a little bit, go into a little bit about how that works? Because I think that might scare a lot of leaders, the idea of peers, like because where where's the expertise in that relationship or where does that interaction happen? Yes, and I think they'd be right to. And I think probably most teachers have, have got experience of working in groups with colleagues, a group work, if you like, that's just excruciating and, and really terrible. Um, and so we've tried to think about, well, why why is it terrible sometimes? Why why doesn't it work, if you like? And the, the thing you've highlighted on there, I think, is core to that, which is the expertise in the group. Now, 
uh, I've already said I think that's important in, in a coaching relationship, the expertise of the coach. And the same applies within a group. Mm. So how do we turn a group into the wisdom of a crowd as opposed to the lowest common denominator of a group? And, and we've all experienced what happens in a group is lots of just bad ideas get circulated around and there's no, uh, there's no challenge to that. And, and they're kind of people giving each other bad advice. How do we prevent that? What do we do? Well, I think there's a couple of things. So one is that those groups don't stand alone, that they're underpinned by a whole lot of resources and courses in particular where teachers learn about this underpinning theory, if you like. They develop what um, uh, people have called uh, mental models in the deliberate practice literature, for example. So they understand if, we, if we're talking about, um, let's say, retrieval practice or cold call or any of those types of things, they understand the theory behind it and they understand a range of options around it and, um, you know, the, the science of learning that underpins it and so on. And co- if teachers have done those courses, then part of the hope is that, that any discussion they have around how to make retrieval work is going to be a lot more informed than just, the, you know, their own personal preferences and and intuition intuition is important but intuition needs to be guided and developed it's not just a kind of gut feeling which can often be wrong the other thing is the feedback tools so things like capturing video of your own classroom and sharing that with others in the group and you might be um, squirming when you hear that and think well i'd rather stick pins in my eyes than capture video at all of me teaching let alone share it with a group of colleagues and a lot of teachers do think that. So we have to work up to that gradually in, in some cases. Some are up for it, um, and that's great if they are. And uh, But there are all sorts of, I think, good reasons why some people are, are more reluctant to do that. So we can find ways of, of getting into that more easily if that if that's a bit scary to go right in there. But, but yes, taking video and sharing video is a really – it's much more efficient than having a coach in the room. Not as good. Uh, you know, if you can have an expert in the room with you – that's much, much better. But most of us can't. There aren't enough experts and they don't have time to do that. So if you capture a video of, let's say, we're talking about retrieval practice, that might be the first 10 minutes of your lesson. So they've only got to watch 10 minutes. They don't have to watch the whole lesson. And if there's four or five people in the group, they can all watch that. Then what you hope you get is some, uh, because we've designed the feedback tools to be not just people's opinion, uh, things like the student surveys, obviously, um, you hear what the students think about that. Um, the the video tools again. There's support for people to make sound judgments because we again we know classroom observation can be really problematic. It, it's it's hard to do well. It's hard to make good judgments and give good advice and good feedback about classroom practice for a whole range of reasons. So there's support there and training in specifically doing that as well. And, and, and the other thing about the feedback is that you can see within that group who's doing this really well. So the group might decide, well, all right, let's focus on retrieval quizzes at the start of a lesson because we're all doing that. That might come from leadership. That would be fine. You know, if leadership says, this is the thing we want everyone to work on this, this half term or this term, I think that's great. That's fine. So everyone's doing retrieval quizzes. They can all watch each other do it. And it becomes pretty clear that there's one person who's really, really good at it and the others are on a spectrum of, of learning uh, to get better. Well, they're all learning to get better. Even the person who's really, really good at it can still be better. Um, but having that person in the group and having that person identified um, for everyone to see 
we hope is powerful because uh, it makes the advice they give perhaps more helpful. Uh, so instead of, again, another problem with these groups, I think, is that people who have high status in the organisation or people who are just more talkative, more confident, their voices are, if, if you like, turned down a little bit and the voices of those who are actually good at it because everyone can see the, the feedback for, for everybody, uh, their, their voices are turned up a bit. That's the hope anyway. Yeah. Uh, and we've seen a bit of encouragement for that in, in the trials. It's all a work in progress. We're trying to learn how does it fail and how can we stop it failing? And um, so over time, we'll find better and better ways to to stop it failing. And, you know, we're at an early stage in that journey, but but we will get there. This is the thing that's really exciting me about this conversation and about what you and organisations like yours are doing is it's a learning journey and we're seeing it as such. It's not a finished product. And that means that doesn't mean it's not valuable for the schools on that journey. It means it's really valuable for them because it's going to really help them develop their practice, their reflective skills as leaders as well, to think about their practice more deeply. Yes, exactly. And you have to start somewhere. And and I think the starting point that we can offer is as good as what anyone else can do because it is based on a lot of thinking and reading and uh, experimenting already. But it will become even better as we learn more about how to structure it, how to support people to use it well, what the common pitfalls are and how to avoid them if we can. So we talk about feedback as being really, really important. Feedback for teachers um, about their classrooms, but also feedback for school leaders, by the way, about the, the staff culture and beliefs and, and practices and their own leadership. So we have a survey, staff survey on that as well. Not many leaders are really up for that. I think, again, for good human reasons. Why Why would you sign up to be told that everything isn't great in your school yeah. when you can carry on believing it is great? Because one of the features of being a leader is that you see a very selective uh, view of, of what's going on. People don't tell you the truth. They can't tell you the truth. You can't see the truth as a leader, I don't think. Mm. In fact, I know lots of good evidence for that. But we also, as the... Um, the organization creating this product, we also get the feedback. So every time anybody does one of these surveys or collects information of different kinds about the student attainment data and, and classroom observation and all these other things, we're looking to see, right, well, we, where are the classrooms where teachers are, are improving and what is it they're doing? Which schools are helping their teachers to improve? What are they doing that's different from the ones where they're not improving so much. Can we can we influence that? Can we give a little nudge to this group of schools and compare that with what happens if we didn't give that nudge to another group of schools? So so we're getting that feedback. We're making those um, little experiments, if you like, the kind of A-B testing. And from that, we're learning about how best to support people. So when we talk about feedback, it's not just feedback for other people, it's feedback for us. A lot of leaders that I speak to get... I'm sure a few who are listening to this are going to be like, I haven't got time for this. There's no time, you know, cause, and you talk a little bit about that in one of your, one of your blog posts, but what you're saying is, you know, potentially by following this kind of approach, it's going to, your PD is going to be less sporadic of random workshops throughout the year and, and bits and bobs and more focused on teacher first learning, focusing on what the teachers need and then looking at the evidence and, and, and using that as your guiding star rather than who's out there, what experts can we bring into the school, who's available? Yeah, that kind of bolt-on. Um, I mean, we, we just know that doesn't work, that kind of bolt-on. And it does come down to time. Time is really, really important. Time is a barrier. 
But I am um, just incredibly intolerant of that as an excuse. I, I will not hear, you know, it's like the student who says, well, the bus was late or something. You know, why, why are you late for school? Well, bus is always late. You need to allow enough time for the bus to be late so that you're here anyway. It's not an excuse. Um, and same with time. Time, if you're a leader of an organisation, your responsibility is to develop strategy, you know, decide what as an organisation are we trying to do and how are we setting about doing it, and then allocate resources to achieve to, to achieve that. And that's what you have to do. That's what managers do in every organisation. So if there isn't enough time to do something, that's because you've chosen to do other things. That That's literally it. You've chosen to allocate that time to doing things that are less important. So don't come to me and say, you haven't got time to do this. You have to make time. You don't do that by adding it on top of things that people are already doing. That's a recipe for a lot of resentment and pushback and disaster. It won't work. So you have to stop people doing some of the things that they're doing, de-implement. And of course, that's difficult. I'm not saying it's easy to do, but um, you need to move beyond saying, oh, we just haven't got time to do it to thinking about, well, how can we make time to do it? Because professional learning is the most powerful thing you can do to improve students' learning. There are lots of other things you can do. There are lots of interventions you can put in place. There are structural things you can do. Some of those can be quite important. But fundamentally, for in, in terms of the long-term impact and genuine sustainable impact, professional learning is the biggest lever you've got. So you should be prioritising that right at the top of your list of priorities. And therefore to say, and, and surveys in the blog are quoted a survey from um, the DfE in England, did of teachers in England, who report spending about half an hour a week on average on professional learning out of about a 50-hour working week, of which about half is, is classroom teaching. So roughly 25 hours in the classroom, roughly another 25 hours doing other stuff and of that about half an hour is professional learning well that doesn't scream to me this is my top priority that screams you know this is a thing you've tried to squeeze in so um that tells me the leader's not really doing their job which is working out what's important and finding a way to make time for people to do that thing that's a really clear call to action rob and 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 i it's brutal i'm afraid but i I think it is (laughs) it is brutal but it's it's an it's an inescapable fact, and yeah. in the end, it is leadership. That's what leadership is, right? Exactly. What else is it? You have responsibility for allocating the resource in the organisation, people's time, for telling people, uh, you know, what they should be doing with that time. Do you like have any tools or other places where leaders could go just to kind of look at effectiveness of some of the different things they might be doing to help them make that kind of decision as to where to streamline? It is a good question. I mean, there's research on some of this stuff. Um, I don't think there's a kind of ready-made guide to um, how impactful different things are versus how much time they take, uh, because I think it's a bit more complex than that. But I do think there are some great examples out there of people uh, rethinking the way they do marking, for example. So things like whole class marking, where you uh, pick out a particular student's work, perhaps under a visualizer, and you go through that in detail with everyone in the class, rather than writing detailed notes on each child's piece of work. Um, so that's clearly a lot quicker. Um, but also, I think done well can also be more effective. 
So it's not about stop doing it. It's about looking for more efficient ways of doing the same thing, I think. That's right. And I think what you said about there might not be a checklist that says, you know, start here and, you know, cut it off. But speaking to community, speaking to other school leaders, and then speaking to your own school communities, the staff, the teachers, what's what's taking up their time, getting feedback in your own school and your own context will go a long way to helping you make the decisions as to what's impactful. Yes, I think so. I, th- I think if, if I was a school leader in this position, I'd be looking to start with uh, the staff, my colleagues, the staff that I work with, and asking them, where do you think we could cut some of the time we spend on stuff? And I'd want that debate to be informed by evidence, uh, so not just popularity, because there are, will be some things that teachers really hate doing that actually are really important. Yeah. Um, but I think that starting with popularity is a is a not a bad place because you'll then get buy-in yes. and it's more likely that you'll genuinely free some time. And if there are things that teachers are doing that are unpopular, I think it's important for leaders to know that and to be able to make the case, well, why is it important that you have to fill in this information for me? And to have a conversation about, well, is there a way we could do it that would be a a bit quicker, a bit more efficient uh, and still meet those needs? So I think there's often a disconnect between the school leader's view about why it's necessary to do and the teacher's view about what what a nuisance it is to do and so just opening that dialogue I think can often be a, a productive thing Rob's insights challenge us to confront a fundamental tension the gap between research and real world application he urges leaders to take ownership of time allocation arguing that professional learning is the most potent lever the sustainable improvement in student outcomes. But here's the kicker. How do we reconcile the need for evidence-based practices with the complexity and diversity of our classrooms and schools? Rob's perspective invites us to question the status quo. Are we as leaders merely reacting to the immediate needs of our institutions or are we proactively carving out time for what truly matters? It's a question that doesn't offer easy answers but it does beckon us towards a more nuanced understanding of leadership in our schools. Global Ed Leaders is hosted and produced by me, Shane Leaning, and original music is by Guillermo Silva. If you like this show, I hope you'll love my newsletter with reflections on the latest episodes and leadership advice. You can just subscribe on my website, shaneleaning.com, and if you are online, reach out and share your journey. You can find me on Twitter using my handle at LeaningShane or LinkedIn using the links in the show notes. And if we don't speak before, I'll see you next week. Bye.